and welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on today's episode, we are talking about the 2020 elections. Now, before you're already saying to yourself, I'm tired of hearing about the elections, it's far away, I can't keep up with all the different people who are throwing their hat in the race, know that we're talking about this from a little bit of a different angle today. We're talking about you the voters. What issues do you care about, including suburban women? What do millennials care about? What does Generation Z care about? Where are these different voting blocks on issues and what does that mean for 2020? We're also going to delve into some interesting elements of how Twitter and how social media impacts all of this. And joining us to talk about it all is Kristen Soltis Anderson. She's a friend and she is also a co-founder of Echelon Insights and is the author of The Selfie Vote. You've probably seen her before on TV. She is an ABC News political commentator and a columnist at the Washington Examiner. Kristen, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So before we get into the different voting blocks, which of course you research, you talk about every day, I'm curious from you, and I just realized this a few days ago, that you've taken a break from Twitter during Lent. Can we just talk about that? What was that decision like, and what has a Twitter-free world been like for you in the past few weeks? The decision came about because the new Apple operating system on the phone will let you track sort of how much screen time you spend. How much time do you spend looking at your phone? It's scary, right? You can also specifically (laughs) say, like, how much time do I spend looking at social media? And I won't scare you with the number, but it was a number. It would say things like, congratulations, your screen time is down 20% from yesterday. You only looked at it for five hours. And I'm like, wait a minute how did I spend five hours looking at my phone? How is that even possible? And you realize you've accumulated over the course of sitting in Ubers, waiting in the waiting room at the doctor's office, you know, waiting for a meeting to start, that you just rack up all of this time just feeding your brain a steady stream of whatever's in your Twitter feed. And much like you should try not to have a diet that consists only of eating french fries and ice cream all day, uh, you kind of shouldn't do that for your news diet. And I realized that I wasn't reading, you know, the long form piece someone wrote about issue X, Y, or Z. I was reading the 200 character tweets someone had and sort of ingesting other people's hot takes as news instead of actually just ingesting real news. And I also realized that, look, my job is I'm a pollster. I'm supposed to understand where kind of your average person is coming from. And I think you can trace some of the ways in which the polling world got things wrong in 2016, which we can talk about that you know, later on. Um, but part of it is, you know, my job is not to be in a bubble. My job is not to be just caught up in the beltway group think what have you. And Twitter is the beltway groupthink on steroids and directly on your phone. And so what I have found since leaving Twitter for just the last couple of weeks is one, whole news stories come and go and I I miss them and it's okay. Um, I don't advocate that people like brag about being uninformed, but there is a limit to the number of news stories one can be aware of or knowledgeable about and not all news stories are equally important. And so there have been a handful of things that have happened over the last few weeks that have caused a big firestorm in Twitter land, but were not controversies or even really issues that require any thought if you're not someone who just professionally 
has hot takes for a, a living. Um, so missing out on kind of the junk and just being able to ingest the news directly and kind of form my own opinions on it before I see the six hot takes that are trying to shape my opinion has been so great. And it's really helped me get perspective on just how disconnected I think the Twitter conversation is from what most voters and Americans are really thinking about. Well, one of the things I think is so fascinating about Twitter, and I, I don't know if this data point has changed as of late, but the last time I heard it's about 5% of the population in America is on Twitter, but the majority are reporters. You have a lot of reporters, people who are activists along those lines. So the average person isn't necessarily on Twitter following it. It's just that so much of the news these days is reporting what somebody said on Twitter. So it seems like a bigger sphere as far as who's involved with it than what really is the case. And so so do you think that that is damaging when it comes to Twitter, that it seems bigger than what it is? Well, I think that Twitter absolutely drives traditional media conversation. And there's no better example of that than President Trump. Absolutely. Um, the percentage of people who I actually think see the president's tweets when he tweets them is much smaller than I think the percentage of people who hear about this thing the president tweeted from other news outlets kind of reporting on it because, hey, if the president says it, then it's news and what have you. And so really, I mean, the the journalistic kind of obsession with Twitter on tweets, I think is actually part of how Trump wound up getting so much coverage early on in the 2016 election and then ultimately became president. Um, so you're 100 percent right that Twitter is not a representative sample of the American people. It's very heavily populated by reporters, activists, politicos. And there was a fascinating study that the New York Times did about two weeks ago, studying Democratic voters who are and are not online Democrats. So what they did, they defined online Democrats as someone who posts about politics online on a social media platform. So it could be Facebook, it could be Twitter, et cetera. Um, and they said Democrats who are online something like 70% of them consider themselves liberal or progressive. But if you look at Democrats who are not posting on Twitter and Facebook about their political views, a majority are moderate or conservative. So there's this huge disconnect between kind of the Twitterverse Democratic primary and an awful lot of Democratic voters who are not engaged in that at all. They're going to find out from candidates by picking up the Des Moines Register or going to a diner in, the, in Manchester. And that's how they're going to navigate 2020, not by hot takes on Twitter. And and on that note, I have a question on that, but people should know that you are still tweeting about your dog, Wally. So there yes. are Wally <laughs> updates every day or most days, which I thoroughly enjoy. So dog posts, you, you've, ke you've kept it current with the dog, dog Twitter account, which I appreciate. I have. And because I still have to open the app every day to post that, I did wind up cheating just a bit the <laughs> other day. I just it was like muscle memory. I forgot that I wasn't supposed to be looking at the feed and I just kind of clicked over to it. And all I saw were a couple tweets about the first image taken of a black hole. Yes. So luckily it was not a dumb story or a politics story. I felt OK that that was my like slip up. But I think I pretty quickly was like, oh, I'm not supposed to be reading this. I should be getting this from some other news source. So uh, I caught myself. I caught myself. Well, let's look at the difference between those who are on the Twitter Twitter sphere, as you call it, and also just people in America who the only thing they get from Twitter is a news report will um, refer to something that somebody has has typed on Twitter is 
I think that when it comes to the Twitter sphere, they think everybody thinks like them. And it's very easy to self-select who you want to follow and who follows you. And so you're able to be in these siloed environments. And do you think that part of the reason why people are so confused, not just about Donald Trump's win, um, but also what I think, which is he still has a chance for re-election. I think most people in D.C. or New York would be shocked by that and say that there's no way. And I'm curious of your opinion on that and what you see in the polling. But do you think part Part of it is, is that middle America, since they're not, or not even just middle America, but Americans who aren't in Twitter, on Twitter all the time, aren't on these activist group think outlets, that they actually have a lot of different opinions and people who are in these groups often can't see outside of it. Do you see that it's a lot of it is we self-select who we want to hear from and that creates a problem? Well, I think there is an element of either people intentionally self-selecting or what I think is even more problematic and more prevalent is algorithms feeding us stuff that we Mm. engage with. So these social media platforms, by and large, their business model is they want you to spend as much time looking at them as possible. That's how they serve you ads. That's how they have numbers that they can show to their investors. That's how their stock price goes up. So these platforms want you to be hooked. And the way they're going to get you hooked is not by feeding you broccoli, is not by feeding you white papers about infrastructure policy, right? It's going to be by showing you things that make you emotional one way or the other. So that might be baby pictures. That might be great memories from your birthday last year or, you know, the wedding photos from your friend from high school, it, or it could be uplifting videos of, uh, you know, a rescue dog, something like that. It can be positive things, but it can also be things that make you engage because they arouse negative emotion, anger, frustration. You, you know, there are tons of these clips, watch AOC own this person in this congressional hearing and you feel emotion, you're frustrated. How dare that person ask her that question or give her that response? And, and it's, it's things that cause you to feel strong emotions that suddenly get a lot of clicks, they get a lot of engagement and the algorithms go, oh, we've got a good piece of content here. And that's the stuff that gets prioritized in your news feeds. So social media is not just people sort of self-selecting to only follow people who think like them, but then it's the algorithms kind of passively just giving you stuff that's going to make you feel strong emotions one way or the other. And I think that's what leads to our discourse kind of degrading and allows, I, I hate using the term fake news, but I'll give you a good example. There was a news story about a year ago claiming that the Department of Health and Human Services had banned seven keywords from use in CDC uh, appropriations requests. The, the CDC was not allowed to use the word transgender, evidence-based, science-based, um, vulnerable. Like there were a couple different words that the CDC it said, oh gosh, they're banned from using these words. And the way that the news stories were written, you would have assumed that like Vice President Pence himself walked into the building and like issued this diktat that like, you right. shall not say these words. The reality was much less sexy, right? The reality was that actually it was some career bureaucrats within the CDC who were in all likelihood not conservatives, actually writing a style guide for their colleagues to say, look, we don't want to upset Republicans in Congress, and we assume that they don't like the word vulnerable, so let's not use the word vulnerable. I mean, in a way, it's an interesting story about the way liberals perceive conservatives, but it's not a scandal of censorship. But nonetheless, what story went viral? CDC banned these words. You had a performance artist 
projecting those seven words on the side of the Trump hotel, like, oh my gosh, this is such a horrible scandal. But no one ever saw the follow-up story because the follow-up story doesn't arouse strong emotion in you, right? It doesn't, it's not scandalous. It's like, this is just the way bureaucracy is working and it's kind of mundane. And so social media, I think, amplifies the stuff that's outrageous and we consume it and we freak out and we share it without taking a moment to know, okay, is this really accurate? Or am I just further fanning the flames um, of discord and division by sharing this? Because the stuff that actually brings us together and makes us think and doesn't make us freak out is just not getting shared as much in the algorithms. And I'm sure with your hiatus of Twitter and you were saying just reading longer form um, stories about different issues going on in the news, I think that also allows for the whole knee-jerk reaction of, let me comment on this, let me try to get as many retweets as possible. It takes all that away, and I'm sure even as you um, do media interviews on a regular basis, it's probably, and, and I'm curious if this is true, but it's probably given you probably even different talking points, because you're not grabbing what you've seen on Twitter and the headlines. You're grabbing from the knowledge and then developing um, your perspective on just the facts and not other people's Which, opinions. I think you're right. And ideally, that's the way you'd want to do it anyways. You would hope that when you go on TV to right. say what you think, that it is what you kind of think on your own. But it's so easy when you're in that sort of mode of thinking, A, I need to have an opinion on everything. And B, <laughs> uh, I need to read everyone else's opinion on everything so that I make sure I, I know where my opinion falls. Am I in the minority or the majority? I mean, I don't I don't know those things and I don't care about them anymore yeah. as of the last couple of weeks. Again, this is a, a relatively new phenomenon, but it is so refreshing to not feel like I need an opinion on every single little thing that breaks out. Like, I'll give you an example of a story I almost completely missed. So I know Candace Owens testified in front of Congress and there was a big sort of moment where she and Congressman Ted Lieu had some kind of exchange that went viral. I have almost no idea what it was about. It was the sort of thing that was like Twitter catnip, but if you weren't on Twitter, it was almost invisible to you. And so if I decide, okay, I wanna understand more about this, I can always go get information about it. But had I been on Twitter, I probably would have watched all these clips. I would have gotten angry and frustrated and had some kind of negative emotion. It's been a lot of time. And spent time that I should be using doing work for my clients and maybe writing my column and hanging out with my dog. You know, <laughs> and your husband. Min- and those are minutes I can spend doing other things uh, that I'm not wasting on some chasing some silly story. And I do think that there is overall people who are, are are realizing this, stopping Twitter. You even had AOC come out and say that she wants to stop Facebook. So I think that there is almost, we're getting to that tipping point where people may, may be seeing that it's not the best way to actually discuss issues. So I have hope for podcasts, whether it's this podcast, you also have a podcast, the podcast world that's out there is that people actually crave long form conversations again, and they want information and they want an entertaining and entertaining and conversational way but they don't want the clickbait nature anymore. So I'm hopeful about that. Um, but while we have you, I want to turn to what you do on a day-to-day basis, which is looking at the different voting blocks across this country. And one of the voting blocks that was discussed most often in the midterms was about suburban women. And I'm curious from you, um, there's been 
some discussion, some polling about how they feel about uh, border security and the wall, showing that they may be tipping a little bit back more towards um, the Republican side, or at least President Trump. What are you seeing today when it comes to suburban women? For the suburbs in 2018, it was really, I think, a fight over health care, first and foremost. And then I think secondary to that, part of what Democrats were able to kind of do was run candidates who were more sort of moderate in temperament and sort of set themselves up as a contrast with what folks feel like is a very sort of toxic and chaotic Washington. When we think about the freshman class of Democrats from 2018, most people's minds go to AOC, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, you know, some of these kind of bomb throwing, high profile, uh, you know, lightning rod folks that have been in the center of controversies and, and battles and what have you, even battles within their own party. Um, But for the most part, the way Democrats won in the midterms was by fighting battles in these suburban districts and doing so with pretty moderate, kind of mild-mannered candidates. You had the voters in the suburbs of Houston, um, Dallas, Oklahoma City, Des Moines, all behaving like voters in the suburbs of, say, Philadelphia and uh, uh, Los Angeles. And, and that to me was a really fascinating dynamic that suburbs in red states and blue states kind of behaved in a similar fashion. And healthcare was a huge issue there. And Republicans kind of got themselves into a tough spot by, on the one hand, saying we're going to repeal and replace Obamacare, which was a message that had been very successful for Republicans over past midterm cycles because Obamacare itself was not very popular. People saw their premiums going up. They didn't have access to their same doctors. But then when repeal and replace kind of halfway didn't really work, kind of, sort of, you know, it sort of (laughs) looked like A, Republicans weren't terribly competent and that B, you know, now anything that went wrong in the healthcare system, Republicans were sort of owning a piece of that too. And so you saw Democrats running you know, there were almost no Democratic campaign ads in those districts about things like the Mueller report or what have you. It was all about kind of health care and cost of living. And so for a suburb, suburban voters and especially suburban women, I think winning the issue of health care is really important. I mean, there have there's been some criticism of the president in recent weeks because he sort of brought the issue of health care back up. Republicans were like, oh, I thought we moved on from that. And he's sort of saying, no, let's try it again. Uh, It's a risky proposition because it's an issue Republicans are not doing great on these days in the polls. But the president's not wrong that as long as Republicans continue to lose on health care badly, that's going to be a liability with those sort of suburban female voters. The other big contrast, as I mentioned, is many of these folks winning in these sort of suburban swing districts. Again, they're not the lightning rods. They're much more moderate in temperament. And I do think that they tried to contrast themselves with the sort of bombast they see out of Washington. I mean, love or hate the president, he is certainly a an aggressive guy. Uh, he's not uh, afraid to fight, to throw some punches. Um, and I do think that there is a sense of exhaustion out there among some suburban voters, particularly suburban women, who they may like a lot of the things the president's done. They may love the way the economy is going, but kind of go, Oh, I wish he would knock it off with the tweets sometimes. Oh, I wish, you know, we could all just get along a little bit better. 
Um, and I think the Democrats were effective at tapping into that in a handful of places, and that's what allowed them to put together a majority in the midterms. And one of the things I think is fascinating about the healthcare debate is the debate is not now about whether or not Obamacare is working, because even Democrats are coming out with their own plans to replace Obamacare. And so what I think is fascinating is you have both parties talking about what they think healthcare should look like, and that Obamacare has a lot of problems. Um, and seems that you know, Democrats are wanting to double down on government-run health care. And of course, Republicans are, are trying to bring another option. Um, but one of the things with health care that I'm curious about is, obviously, health care is important to them. What do they often say that they want? When it comes to suburban women, what, what type of policy, and, and maybe you don't poll quite this way, but what are they looking for when it comes to health care? Well, there are a couple different things that you can sort of test to see what do people care about. One is the cost. Um, how expensive is it to go to a doctor? How expensive is it to pay for your premiums? The second is just access. Um, is it something where it's easy for you to be able to get coverage in the first place? Um, or do you have to worry about if I have a pre-existing condition, I can't get coverage at all? Um, and then there's quality. And quality is something that I think Democrats have a real challenge with on this. Um, Democrats will sort of be able to say, look, we're offering subsidies to handle the cost side. Look, we've got we're, we're the ones pushing for the pre-existing conditions coverages while Republicans are fighting it in court. But on quality, I mean, this is where the argument really falls apart. If you look at the way single payer healthcare systems are in other countries, yes, everyone can go to the national health, the NHS hospital in the UK. But is the carrier going to get there any good or will you be on a wait list for many months and then you still won't get to actually see a very good specialist so if you actually want good quality care, you need to get private insurance or go somewhere else. I mean, quality of care is the big missing link when you actually look at a lot of these single payer systems. And I think that's something that Republicans need to talk about. How can we create a higher quality of health care that actually produces really good health outcomes for people um, and, and, and works better? And, you know, because at the end of the day, what matters most to people is, am I healthy or not? Um, and so if you're if you're offering health insurance that people can get and it's affordable, but it's not actually giving them what they need to be healthy, um, that's where I think it sort of falls apart. And I don't think anybody really has covered the quality side of the equation. Um, how are you going to make sure we have enough doctors or people qualified in elder care? How are we going to revamp? to make sure that uh, medical records um, are easily shareable, but also very private and very secure. And there are all sorts of pieces of the puzzle that I think can be tackled and don't have to be just one party or the other tackling them, um, but that in the kind of, do we want Obamacare or do we want single payer often kind of get lost. And I think for Republicans, one of the things that's going to be so essential for them, you talked about what took place in 2017, where the House did vote for uh, repealing Obamacare. It seemed that where the the, pla the place where 
they got hung up was they didn't agree on what um, re replacing a repeal looked like. And so coming up with a clear plan, I think is important for them. Um, and also when it comes to Democrats, and there's a variety of different perspectives on what healthcare looks like, I think for Americans, they want to know the details behind it. It's it's the, the message of healthcare for everybody that's affordable is a very easy message, but learning the details behind it, I think is a harder thing to talk about. But that type of message um, that Democrats do put out there, I do think it's very appealing to young people, whether millennials or when it comes to Generation Z. And so I'm curious from you, I, where are they on so many of these issues? I would venture to guess that when it comes to issues like climate change, when it comes to issues like social issues, they're definitely going to lean more progressive on those issues. But there's this mindset or this theory that people often have is that, well, millennials, I think the upper age range is 38 now. As they get older and they pay taxes and have a family and everything else that you do when you become an adult, they automatically are going to start becoming more conservative. But are you seeing that that's the case or often are they staying very progressive, not just in social issues, but also fiscal issues? So what you've mentioned in terms of things like climate change, social issues, for sure, I've seen tons of data that suggests millennials are quite progressive on those issues and, in fact, have only become more progressive even as they've aged. So they've not, you know, gotten older and suddenly walked back their views on climate or gotten older and walked back their views on LGBT rights. As the years have progressed, they've sort of only become more convinced that climate is a serious issue and we need to address it. Um, and they feel like Democrats are the only ones that are talking about the issue at all. And so it's, it tends to then favor them. Same thing with some of the social issues, although I would say an issue like abortion is very different than an issue like LGBT rights when you look at sure. polling and where young people are. But on the fiscal issues is where I think things are most fascinating. So back in 2010, you uh, there's a question that the Pew Research Center asks over and over and kind of trends this data over time where they say, which would you prefer, a government that does more to solve problems or a government that leaves more things to businesses and individuals to solve? So do you want government to be more active or do you want government to get more out of the way? And back in 2010, remember, this was kind of the moment that the Tea Party movement was just getting underway. Most voters across all but one generation said, you know, I think the government should get out of the way. I would rather have more things handled by individuals and businesses. It was only the millennial generation and then only by a slim majority saying, no, I want government to do more to solve problems. In the decades since then, every generation has moved more progressive on that question. Baby boomers have moved more progressive by about six points. Gen X has gotten more progressive to where now 53% of them say, I want government doing more. But for millennials and Gen Z, that number is now 70%. The idea that we want a more activist government solving problems, there is just less faith that individuals in the private sector can solve problems. And this kind of goes back, you know, the, the millennial generation grew up in the post-financial crisis, post-Iraq war world. But also in the world where, you know, Obama was elected and at first millennials had a lot of hope in him, a lot of hope and change. Um, but then some of that kind of soured and whether it was souring on both political parties where we see millennials over like overwhelmingly saying, look, I'm just an, an independent. I don't identify with one party or the other. But they also just became sort of skeptical that things were going to get fixed or existing systems were really fair and more of an appetite for the government to kind of step in and play referee. 
And so I think for like, if you take a look at polling on things like capitalism versus socialism, it is true that slightly more Gen Zers, those are ones kind of born after 1996. So they're, you know, college age and younger. Um, they do think like, look, I have a slightly more favorable view of socialism than capitalism. Look, I might want to live in a socialist country. But they also, I think, have defined socialism down. You always see right. these memes, right, where it's like socialism's not the Soviet Union and Venezuela. Socialism is Denmark and it's free childcare and it's roads and bridges and firefighters. And so the left has had to define socialism down to mean socialism is stuff you like in order to get young people to say, oh, well, sure, I guess I like this. Because a lot of young people, again, they, they were barely aware of current events when the Berlin Wall fell, if they were alive at all. So I, I always caution when I talk to conservative audiences, when they're kind of freaked out about, oh, no, aren't the kids these days, they're all socialist and like, take a breath. <laughs> they do not want government to seize the means of production. <laughs> that is not what they want. What they want is for a society that feels like it's fair. And to them, Working hard and playing by the rules ought to mean you get rewarded. That to them would be a system that's fair. And that's what yeah. capitalism is supposed to be, a system where if you work hard and play by the rules, the harder you work, the better ideas you come up with, the cooler things you invent and the smarter you run your company, the more money you can make. And hey, we say that's kind of a good thing. But millennials aren't wrong for saying, I don't know that that's the way the system's actually working nowadays. They see a CEO bankrupt a company and walk away with a golden parachute and they go, hang on, but I'm working for $9 an hour. I feel like I'm working pretty hard. Why do they have a gajillion dollars and a yacht and I can barely afford to pay for my health insurance? Something feels wrong here. They're not wrong for thinking something is up and we need some kind of change in our society. The challenge for those who are advocates of free markets is to explain, one, where crony capitalism or big government has sort of gotten involved and made markets not work, number one. And number two, be reasonable about what kinds of guardrails we can put up to address true market failures, true ways in which we like to think free markets can solve everything, but there are sometimes blind spots and market failures that it's it's not bad to have some reasonable regulation in some places. And if we can't outline what that looks like, then suddenly the left defining socialism down looks much more appealing. So there's a way out for free marketeers and those who love capitalism to make their case, but it has to sort of come from a, a position of saying, look, we wanna create a more fair economy. So let's discuss what fairness really is and how we get there because everybody getting the same thing, everybody ending up in the same place with a kind of mediocre government-funded quality of life that's only so-so, that's not what people generally really want. They want basic needs met. They want to make sure that you know people can get health care, and if you've fallen on hard times, you're not stuck out in the streets without the ability to get a doctor. They also want to make sure that hard work really is being rewarded, that capitalism is delivering on that hypothetical promise. And so I, 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 I always caution people, don't freak out that the kids are all socialist. They just want a system that's fair. And I think at its heart, the concept of socialism is not what young people would think of as fair, but they just are drawn to it because it is defined in a way that is so kind of light and fluffy and separate from what we know socialism to mean when we do look at 
countries like Venezuela, Cuba, what happened in the Soviet Union, and, and so on. And final question for you is, I have actually thought that the term socialism and what Democrats are now talking about and, and aligning themselves with, even though I agree with you, it's it's not their definition of socialism. It may be different than what we think of of the Soviet Union. I think it's a good thing that we're talking about it because I think it gives people who believe in the free market an opportunity to say this is what they're for. Here's what we're for. So I, I've thought that it's good that socialism is now being discussed. The term is out there. Do you find that that even though it's for many people, they're scared that so many people say that they're in favor of it. It actually is an opportunity to talk about it and, and show why the free market is different than that. 100%. And I think it can't just be, you know, folks standing up and saying, hey, you crazy millennial kids, you weren't around for the Cold War, but let me tell you something. There were bread lines in the Soviet Union. You know, <laughs> I've like, heard I a lot of that so far. <laughs> there are, I, I know that's going to be tempting to think like we can just educate the kids and they will all come around to us. But I think that that's just that's like only a tiny piece of the puzzle and unlikely to persuade a ton of people because they will say, I don't want Venezuela either. I want Denmark. What I think you have to then say is, look, here's why the U.S. economy works differently than Denmark's. And here's why America is the country that people want to come to, the country where incredible stuff is being invented. Look, the Danes gave us Lego. That's amazing. Like, uh, props to you, Denmark. You're great. I have no problem with Denmark. But think about all of the incredible, amazing inventions and innovations and the enormous engine of the American economy and the opportunity we provide here. How do we make sure we're protecting that and being realistic about what has caused that? By all, but at the same time, I think just as we need to, you know, there's that temptation to say, well, let's just go show the kids the Soviet Union and say, look, you don't really want socialism. I think it is incumbent upon those who support free markets to like, let's look within, let's have that reckoning. Is it really, really so crazy for young people to say, why is the CEO of my company making 500 times more than me in a year? Are they working 500 times harder than me? I don't know about that. I mean, I think it's, if we just assume that the kids believe this because they're dumb and they just need to be educated, we're missing the point that there are some valid grievances with the way our economy is running today. And that actually by busting up crony capitalism and by addressing a lot of the ways that governments are causing market failures, uh, we have a message, too, about what a fairer system would look like and how we get there. All right. Well, Kristen, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. And if you are interested in following her on Twitter, following Lent, she may be back on. You can definitely see her her pictures of her dog. It's Kay Soltis Anderson. You can find her on Twitter. And who knows, maybe next week she will be back on Twitter again. But we thank all of you for joining us. We hope you take away something new from today's conversation. And if you enjoyed this podcast, we hope that you will share it. Leave us a review. Let your friends know um, so that they can find more She Thinks episodes on their favorite podcast app. But from all of us here at the end, Independent Women's Forum. Thanks so much for listening.